Let us pray. Lord, we come before you and we pray that you would bless us with understanding in this text. We pray that you would quicken our minds and we pray that your spirit would work within us so that we would see the words, see and understand the words that you have for us. We pray that you would use this passage to change us. And we pray that we would be able to see the glory of you and your salvation in it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The defendant, Mr. Frank Bray, is accused of embezzling the sum of $24,722.48 over a five-month period from his employer. The plaintiff may come and call the first witness. The owner of the Big Bite restaurant and the former employee of the defendant, Mr. Gerald Jones, is called to the stand. Mr. Jones, please give us the history of the case that is before us. Well, um, the defendant, uh, Mr. Bray, had been working for me for a couple of years, and it got to the point that I pretty much trusted him to, to do everything with respect to the restaurant. Uh, my, my mistake, I suppose. Well, a few months ago, I, I noticed that the restaurant was hardly making anything. And that's when I started checking the books, and I figured out that Mr. Bray was stealing my money. Well, it's your word against his. Do you have any other witnesses? Yes, Your Honor. I called Mr. Bray's co-worker to the stand. Well, Mr. Bray was the only one that had anything to do with the money. He bought the food, and he paid the employees. He pretty much did everything like that. And he's the only one that had access to the safe. If something was stolen, it pretty much had to be him. Are there any further witnesses? Yes. I call the accountant to the stand. I'm a forensic accountant, accountant, and I've been working in conjunction with a private investigator. I will now present the court definitive proof that Mr. Bray embezzled the money and I even have in my possession the bank records that show how much, the, uh, how the missing amount from the restaurant each week was deposited into Mr. Bray's checking account each week. In the passage that we have before us, John uses the language of the courtroom. He does this every now and then. And so he is talking about two or three witnesses, and that would have been recognized by someone familiar with the Old Testament. This is the language of the courtroom. Deuteronomy 19.15 says, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that has been committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established and so what is John doing he is using this language of the courtroom and he is saying I am bringing before you three witnesses and he invites his hearers to believe the testimony that has been given to them normally when we think about the language of the courtroom and witnesses being called we're thinking about some sort of crime but this is quite different because this is the best news that the world has ever been given. When Pastor Jeff and I uh, 
preach, we often like to preach through a book. And so we kind of start at the first verse in the book, and we preach on a few verses, and we go the next and the next and the next all the way to the end. And, you know, there's different ways of doing it. Some people like to preach on some sort of a subject, and there's certainly nothing wrong with that. Uh, But one of the things that I like about the way that Jeff and I do it is that it forces you to deal with difficult passages. You see, there are certain passages that you look at them and you start trying to figure it out and you say, man, this is just not worth it. I'm just going to go to a different passage. This is too hard. Um, but when you're dealing with things verse by verse like this, you kind of have to, have to uh, go over them. Uh, and this one is definitely a difficult passage. Uh, William S. Plummer, uh, who is a New Testament scholar, said this is one of the most perplexing passages in the New Testament. And there's a couple of big reasons for that. There's a lot of little reasons. There's a couple of big reasons. And one of the big reasons that this is so difficult is because of Desiderius Erasmus's inclusion of the comma Johannium in the Textus Receptus. And I'm not going to talk about that one at all. I'm actually just going to skip over that one and I'm going to stick with the text as is read in the modern translations because that is more something that is of interest to those who are kind of nerds. Now, I realize that here in the Madison-Huntsville area, we, do, we are blessed with a lot of nerds. Yay for nerds. Uh, but uh, I'm not going to be covering this. If you would like to know more about it, I'd be, really be glad to talk with you later. What I am going to deal about, and what is quite difficult, is the fact that the, the water and the blood here, these, these metaphors that are being used, it's, it's not completely clear what John means by that. Uh, let, me, let me read it and, and, and you listen. This is who, he who came by the water and the blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And so what exactly is this water and blood that he's referring to? It's two of the witnesses that he's calling to the stand, but what is it? There are a lot of different ideas about uh, what it is, and I'm going to deal with, a, with several of them, starting with those that I don't believe are the best interpretations. Uh, Augustine, uh, who was a wonderful theologian, who was a wonderful pastor, uh, who, uh, who lived many, many years ago, said that the blood and the water flowed, uh, the blood and the water in this passage is referring to the blood and the water that flowed from Jesus' side. Because you remember, you know, they stuck the spear in him and there's blood and water that came out. And, and so Augustine said it's probably in reference to that. I mean, it sounds very reasonable, doesn't it? Here's a reason, though, that it doesn't seem like that may be what John is talking about. The blood and water that came from Jesus' side doesn't really sound like it goes with this first part of the passage. This is he who came by the water and the blood. The blood and water came from Jesus' side, but this is talking about something that sounds more historical, something like Jesus doing something in history. This is he who came by the water and the blood. And so it doesn't immediately seem like that's the best interpretation. Another interpretation that I'm not going with is this refers to our baptism and Holy Communion. And so it's referring to our baptism and when we take Holy Communion. And there's uh, some problems with that as well. Uh, It doesn't tell us how Jesus came by water and blood. Uh, Came sounds like someone, namely Jesus, 
did something in history, and it doesn't sound like that really is described by baptism and communion directly anyway. Uh, Problem number two, water could refer to our baptism. There are times where water does refer to baptism, and I actually think it does. I just don't think it refers to our baptism in this passage. But the big problem is that blood by itself is never, never used to describe Holy Communion. It's not. So that doesn't seem like the best interpretation. A third problem. It is not clear how our baptism and communion are a testimony about Jesus from God. It seems more like we're testifying almost in those things. It doesn't seem quite so much like a testimony from God. And so my interpretation for this little passage right here concerning the water and the blood uh, is a little bit different than that. And it is probably the majority view today among New Testament scholars. Uh, And so the water and the blood, I believe, refers to Jesus' own baptism and Jesus' death. And it is very common for people like John to use two big events that's like the beginning and the end of something to describe the whole. That's called a mirrorism, for those of you who are English students. Uh, But uh, sometimes you see things like uh, everything from A to Z. Well, this would be, and so that's the beginning of the alphabet and the end of the alphabet. It describes the entirety of the alphabet. Well, what I'm thinking is going on here is uh, John is using Jesus' baptism, the beginning of his ministry, and then his blood, the very end of his ministry on earth, and he's using that to describe the whole, the entirety of Jesus' ministry as it took place in history. So the water is Jesus' baptism. The blood, obviously, is Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross. And there are two reasons why I believe that this is the best interpretation. There is a sense in which God definitely testified about Jesus at Jesus' baptism and death. If you think back to the account of the baptism that is given in Matthew's gospel, uh, you see God the Father say from heaven, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And the people that were there heard that and were amazed. Likewise, uh, at his death, you see that God the Father did lots of miracles that brought testimony to the validity of Jesus when Jesus was on the cross. You remember there was darkness over the land for three hours. The temple veil ripped. And there was this earthquake, and there were open tombs, and there were dead believers that were raised to life. There were all of these things that happened, these miracles that brought testimony to the validity of Jesus at Jesus' death. And really, even throughout the entirety of Jesus' ministry, we see so many testimonies that he is related to God the Father. We see God the Father working through him as Jesus does these, does these miracles and as he brings the very word of God to people. And so from the beginning to the end of Jesus' ministry, we see God the Father testifying about the validity of God the Son in his ministry. 
And so it's sort of like John is saying, Jesus Christ came into history and he had this ministry ending in sacrifice and God testifies to all of that. Reason number two that I think that this is the best interpretation. Um, The Gnostics. You knew I was going to say it, didn't you? Because it seems like every time I stand up here, I say something about the Gnostics. Well, it's kind of important for the latter. And what exactly is it that the Gnostics believe? You've heard me say it several times. You've actually heard Jeff say it too. What is it the Gnostics believe? Body bad. <laughs> so why is the body bad? Because it's physical. Anything that's physical is bad. Anything that's matter is bad. And so the Gnostics didn't care much for Jesus' humanity. Good job, bro. Um, and there was one particular Gnostic whose name was Serenthus. And Serenthus said that uh, he dealt with this problem, uh, and he said that um, God sort of possessed the man whose name was Jesus at his baptism, and then he ran him around sort of like a robot. And like whenever the earth was opened, then, you know, uh, that was actually God speaking. And then God left him before Jesus died. Well, here we have John talking about this historical Jesus who God is testifying to at his baptism all the way to his death. That would have been a huge problem for Serenthus because in reality he would have denied both, but you can definitely see how he would have, died, how he would have denied that Jesus uh, was the God-man hanging on the cross. He would have just said, Serenthus would have liked to have said that he was just a man hanging on the cross not any different than any other man. So, the water and the blood stands for the entire historical ministry and death of Jesus Christ. Did you get any of that? If you did, you should probably give yourself a gold star because that was actually quite difficult, wasn't it? This is a difficult passage. Well, the hardest part is over. Let's talk about the stuff that's a little bit easier now. And as we do that, Let's think about how we can begin to apply some of the stuff just that we, that we just talked over. Um, when I was much younger, I was working at a church as a youth minister, and you know the kids would bring other kids that they were friends with from school. They would bring them to uh, church, and um, one of the girls had seen this Mel Gibson movie called The Passion of the Christ. Uh, a lot of you have probably seen it. You may have at least heard of it. But in The Passion of the Christ, Mel Gibson depicts the last moments of Jesus on earth. And so it's all about the crucifixion scene, really. And so there's not really that much of his teaching or anything like that. It's just about the crucifixion. And this girl was talking about it, and she said, "Um, you know, I don't understand what the big deal is about this movie. He was just some guy that got killed. Lots of people get killed. Why Why is everybody so excited about this movie? Why are people so excited about that movie? Isn't he just some guy that got killed? Is that all there is to it? Think about that for a second. Who exactly is Jesus? We've talked about this a lot lately. You should be able to see where the problem is in her thinking, shouldn't you? Where is the problem in her thinking? Was he just a guy? Or was there something more to it? Would somebody like to answer? He's also God. Yes, 
Because he's not just a guy like any other guy. He is also 100% God. He is 100% God. He is 100% man. Joined together in one person. And so she was missing something. It's not like her public school experience has ever taught her anything like this. This was probably the first time she had ever darkened the door of a church. And so she just didn't know anything about Jesus at all. Now, here's the harder bit. Where are you going to start when you're talking with this girl? Let's say that she came to you and she wanted to know something about your Jesus. Where are you going to start? Well, where you have to start is to kind of explain who Jesus is. He is both God and man and one person. Otherwise, she's not going to get it. As you are explaining the gospel to her, you must begin with what she already knows. And honestly, that's not very much. Do you know there's a lot of people in Huntsville that have about the same knowledge of Jesus Christ? And you're going to have to talk with them, and when you're talking with them, you have to figure out what they know and what they don't know. And then from time to time, you're going to have to fill in the gaps in their knowledge. If you want to communicate Christ clearly, you have to communicate him in such a way that they will understand it. Now, Those are the first two witnesses. Let's talk about the third witness, who is the Spirit. And the Spirit is truth. In what way exactly is the Spirit a witness to Jesus Christ? Well, he is the Spirit of of truth. And so, okay, he he did appear in the form of a dove at Jesus' baptism. And I think that's significant. But I think that what is probably even more significant here in this passage concerning the Spirit is the idea that the Spirit is truth. He is the one who is the truth speaker. He is the one who is the truth convincer. He is the one who is the truth assurer. Yes, I'm making up words. And so he is the truth speaker. He is the one who inspired the writers of the Bible to say what is true about the ministry and the death of Jesus Christ. And so he is the truth speaker. He is also the truth convincer. He is the one that changes the hearts of men so that they believe what the Bible says about the ministry and the death of Jesus. He is the one who assures that they are born of God. That is is part of his role in the Trinity. Third, he is the truth assurer. He is the one that continues to testify in my heart and in your heart about the death, about the ministry and the death of Jesus Christ. He doesn't leave after we're saved, but rather he is with us the whole time and he is the one who continues to tell us that the stuff that we read in the Bible is true. He continues to minister to us in truth. And so he is the one who is the truth speaker, truth convincer, and truth assurer. Whoever believes in the Son of God has testimony in himself. You realize that John is talking to people who haven't actually seen Jesus with their own eyes or or heard him with their own ears. They have only heard testimonies that have been given to them by people like John. Well, John is assuring them that what they have heard about Jesus is true and is worthy of belief. And to illustrate this, he then continues his courtroom argument. And uh, he brings up the idea that uh, 
we uh, commonly believe in uh, the testimony of men, but the testimony of God is greater. What does that mean? Well, here's what it means. A lot of the things that you believe, you have been taught by people. And there's nothing wrong with that. So, I presently believe that... I have to get over to the correct page... Uh, I presently believe that in the wintertime, in this place that is called Alaska, it gets pretty cold. I've never even been to Alaska in the wintertime, but I believe that is true. But I believe the testimony of men concerning it. I believe that the prime minister of Japan is Yoshihida Suga. I believe that Auburn lost to Penn State on September the 18th, 2021. These are three things that I believe are true, even though I had firsthand experience with none of them. I don't, I've never seen Yoshihida Suga. I wasn't at the game. I don't, but I believe the testimony of men concerning this. But yet, at the same time, we acknowledge, don't we, that it's possible for human beings to say something that is not true. It's possible for human beings to lie. It is possible for human beings to simply be mistaken about something. And if you, if you believe the testimony of men concerning things like the Auburn game, shouldn't you consider how much greater, how much better the testimony of God is himself? Well, God the Father has testified concerning Jesus through his ministry and his death. And God, the Holy Spirit, testifies as well as the true speaker, convincer, and assurer. And even though you may not have been there yourself when Jesus was on earth, you can be assured that all of the things that are said about him are true. And you must, must believe. Because there are severe consequences for not believing. Listen to what John says. Whoever doesn't believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. Those are rough words. Those who are unbelievers are liars, according to John. And your first impression is that maybe John failed that Dale Carnegie course about how to win friends and influence people. But what is he doing? The reason that he is using such strong language, the reason he is calling unbelievers liars, is because this is very serious business. There are times where you have to say things in a way that people will hear, and that is what John is doing. John Stott, the former rector of All Souls Church in London, said this, Unbelief is not a misfortune to be pitied. It is a sin to be deplored. Its sinfulness lies in the fact that it contradicts the words of the one true God and thus attributes falsehood to him. Unbelief is serious business. This week, I was in the hospital, and I was talking to a lady, and I normally, you know, read a verse and and pray with someone, and you know, talk with them a little bit, and uh, as I was talking with her, I could tell that she wasn't hardly interested in what I was saying, um, and at one point, she said this. She said, you know, I'm really not much of a believer. I've never thought that I needed a scapegoat. 
Michael seizes in. I said, uh, do, you know, have you, do you know what that word comes from? Do you, do you know what a scapegoat is? And she said, no, tell me. <laughs> I will. And so I, you know, I took her back to this time on the Day of Atonement. And what would happen is that the priest would put his hands onto this little goat's head. And this is how it's described in Leviticus. Aaron shall lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions and all their sins. He shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all of their iniquities on itself into a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. So what is, it, what is the image that's going on here? What is, what is being taught by symbolically in, in this? Well, the, the high priest on the Day of Atonement, he goes and he puts all of the sins of Israel onto the goat. And then the goat is led far away from the holiness of God, far away from the Ark of the Covenant, from the temple, from the people of God, into the wilderness, into desolation, where it is left to die outside the camp and then much later the author of hebrews says that jesus suffered outside the camp he had all of the bad things that i've ever done or ever will do put onto him and all of the bad things that you have ever done or will do put onto him and he suffered and was forsaken by god outside the camp he is the scapegoat there are two goats the other one was killed, and his blood was used for atonement as a covering. It covered over the sins of the people of Israel so that they were to be forgiven. Jesus did that as well. By his blood, we are forgiven. He is the one who took our sins upon himself. He paid for them all. And because he has made this sacrifice for us, we are able to be forgiven and to receive eternal life. So as I was talking with a lady, I explained all of these things to her, you know, told her John 3.16, all that sort of stuff, explained all this. And she said, well, what should I do? And I said, well, it's obvious what you should do. You should believe. And I said, here's what I want you to do. You have uh, the Bible here. You have a while here in the hospital. I want you to read through the Gospel of John, and I want you to believe. Because that is what it's about. We are to be believers concerning the testimony that is given to us about Jesus Christ. Now, what are we going to do with this? What are we going to do with this passage? How are our lives going to change? I have a couple of things that I want to talk with you about as we get to the end of this sermon. Um, we were having men's night on Thursday. You know, it's where all the guys get together and, uh, and talk about goofy things, guy things. And we also talk about some very good things as well. Um, and someone brought up uh, the, uh, the fact that there are a lot of people who grow up in church, and yet they're not real believers. 
you know, they think that they're good because they show up for church every week and, and do all of the things, but they're not necessarily real believers. In fact, uh, when I was in seminary, there was this one guy who was in seminary. He was studying to be a pastor, and he was reading through his notes one night from Dr. Thomas's class on Intro to Theology, and he realized, I'm not even a real believer. I believe all of these things are true, but I never thought of them as being true about me. I, don't, I never thought about Jesus as being my Savior. And here Dr. Thomas is telling him that he needs to have Jesus as his Savior, to believe that Jesus paid for his sins. And at that moment, this light came on in his head, and he was changed. He was a good guy before, but we could tell the difference. Oh, my goodness. Because he got saved in sin. What? Saved in seminary? That's even worse than growing up in church and not really being a believer. What about you? Do you believe that Jesus is your Savior, not just that he is a Savior? Do you believe what the Bible said is true about him is related to you? Do you believe that he paid for your sins? It's a question to think about even if you've grown up in church. Application number two. God has testified concerning Jesus Christ, and he has also given to us the responsibility that we testify concerning him. If you look at the end of Revelation, it says, The Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let the one who hears say, Come. Who's the bride of Christ? Us. We are to say, come to Jesus. Have you heard the message of Jesus Christ? Yes, you have. So you are to tell others to come to him. It is our responsibility to make him known in Madison and in Huntsville. Other people probably are not going to do it. We have to do it. We have this responsibility. This is on us. This is something we must do. So you have heard the case that John has laid out. You have heard about these three witnesses, and you have believed. Go out there and tell people about him. Believe in him and make him known. 